Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Tyler Cooper, editor-in-chief of the consumer advocacy group Broadband Now. We discuss Broadband Now's research into the digital divide in the U.S. over the years, where things have and have not improved, what Broadband Now has learned about internet affordability, and the group's warnings on potential hurdles with the federal government's BEAD program. Tyler, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Nicole, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I'm super excited to talk with you about all things broadband, Uh, but first I wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and tell us uh, briefly about Broadband Now. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Tyler Cooper. I'm the editor-in-chief at Broadband Now. Uh, We're a consumer advocacy group that has essentially two sides uh, of the same coin. One is that we have a consumer function on our site that lets you type in your zip code and learn what providers are available, find out more information about your area, make more informed choices about what broadband uh, option you select. And then the other side is we have Broadband Now Research, um, which takes a more holistic look at um, the digital divide in the U.S., which is a topic I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so we, we focus on trying to combine public and private data sets to come up with insights that are actionable and helpful for both uh, people at the federal level, but also at the local level, trying to improve their situation. Yeah, and your uh, your research is also super helpful to people like me reporting on the subject of broadband. So thank you for all of the great work you've done over the years. Um, so let's let's talk about it. Let's dive into some of that research. Let's talk about the digital divide. Um, I've been following your research for a while, and kind of wanted to start with like a general overview um, based on your years of looking at this. What's improved about the state of connectivity in the U.S. and where would you say are our biggest remaining barriers? Right. Yeah, well, you know, Nicole, much like many things in our lives, um, this really has a sort of pre and post COVID slant to it. Um, Yeah, for sure. You know, I feel like in 2020, things changed for all of us in in numerous ways. Um, But it certainly changed the state of the broadband industry and just the, the digital divide in general. Um, You know, before COVID, um, there were a number of programs aimed at closing the digital divide, um, but many of them were sort of isolated and underfunded and had less structure um, to them. And and they were also relying on a a sort of insufficient um, measurement uh, process, which we can get into. Um, But during COVID, there um, there were a litany of programs created that really have tremendously helped over the past few years um, address both sides of the digital divide. And, and we should clarify, there's there's really, the way I see it is there's really two components. There's access to an internet connection. That's incredibly important, obviously. And then there's affordability. There's the ability to actually adopt and use that connection and stay connected. Um, so obviously during COVID, we had uh, things like the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program um, and the ACP, the Affordable Connectivity Program, which has replaced it. Um, these programs are have been very successful thus far at um, allowing more people than ever before to get connected to the internet, the internet they already have, um, and stay connected. And that's incredibly important now, obviously, because, you know, three years on here, we're we're all doing much more of our lives online than we were before, at least in many cases. Some of us were doing it before, but 
there's a tremendous amount of new use cases for the internet. And, and with that comes an increased need for reliability, increased need to be able to have a connection that you can um, utilize not only for yourself, but for your family. Um, there's, you know, there's just many new things um, happening in our home when it comes to broadband. Um, so the ACP is a, a really great example of a program that actually has moved the needle on that side of things. But then on the other side, we have the access uh, component of this, and that's where the sort of historic bead grant program that we're entering into this new era with is coming coming into play, right? Um, yeah. We can get into this, but th this is going to be essentially the de facto law of the land for broadband deployment um, for at least the next half decade, in my mm -hmm. view, um, potentially even longer. But this program is, is really geared toward um, taking a fine-tooth comb to the, the issue of the digital divide, measuring it with greater granularity than we've ever measured it before, and then trying to zero in on why those infrastructure gaps exist and who we can partner with at the, at the state and also the local level to, to fill those gaps. Awesome. So yeah, we'll definitely talk about BEAD some more in a little bit, as well as the affordable connectivity program, which you mentioned. Um, but just to kind of uh, stick with where we are right now, another one of your recent reports um, that I think you do on an annual basis is best worth, best and worst states for, for broadband. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you a little bit about this year's findings. Um, and as you say, you know, so much is pre and post well, I, I don't say post-COVID, but pre and yeah. COVID, COVID, the COVID times. Um, so I'd cur I'm curious to know from you in your uh, best worst states for broadband report, um, any notable changes versus last year and or, you know, versus uh, pre-COVID. Pre um, what did you find in this year's reports? Yeah, definitely. This is always an interesting one. Really, this is, this is kind of an organic um piece of research for us because we just track this data ambiently regardless. So this is mm -hmm. something that we're updating on a rolling basis on our site all the time. And over over time, we kind of recognize that it's sort of interesting to see, um, you know, what, what sort of trends are happening uh, in certain states and like are certain states being, uh, are they moving the needle more than others? Is there, you know, are, are there topographical reasons for that? Are there political reasons for that? Um, and so I think one of the sort of obvious things that we have found over the years is that typically uh, the smaller and more urbanized the state is, the the better the numbers look. Uh, and that makes sense when you think about it from a purely private sector standpoint, because obviously providers are incentivized to build um, better service in areas that have high population density. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we can get into actually why that has sort of played into the digital divide in many areas. Um, but yeah, one of the things that we uh, started tracking as well in terms of like, okay, really a few years ago, we sat down and we were like, what does it mean to be like a, the best state for internet or the worst state? And, and the way we see it is it's sort of this mixture of like, if I live in the state, how easy is it for me to get a good internet connection? And how much am I paying for that internet connection? Like what's the local competitive landscape look like? Um, and so, yeah, you know, in terms of this year's findings, it's, it, it's, we've had some shakeups with states, but it's pretty much, it pretty much falls along those lines. What I just said, you know, if you look at the top five states, um, we have Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, and Washington, mm -hmm. all states that, uh, are either pretty small and urban, uh, or states that have a very, 
Um, they're sort of ahead of the game when it comes to broadband deployment. For instance, Washington State has a pretty robust um, national or state broadband office that's been in place a little bit longer than some of the other states um, and takes a kind of unique approach to broadband. They're very pro-municipal um, broadband and have uh, some incentive programs put in place for that that make it a little easier to service areas that um, aren't uh, as high as population densities. Um, and then if you look at uh, the states where we have sort of on the lower end, you know, West Virginia, Alaska, Mississippi, Arkansas, Vermont, um, you know, not all of those are super large states, but they are, for the most part, pretty uh, rural. So, you know, again, no real surprise there. Um, but the sort of taking the national view, the one thing that is surprising to me is we, a few years ago, we, we sort of tried to define what affordability looks like. Yeah. Uh, for broadband, really difficult, um, you know, obviously, because it's, you know, we have regional pricing and we have, you know, different uh, average incomes across, you know, state lines, across uh, urban rural disparities. So um, what, what we ended up doing for statistical purposes is we ended up sort of drawing a line in the sand at $60 per month. And we ended up mm -hmm. saying, like, just as a statistical yardstick, you know, how does that um, how does broadband look on either side of that? Um, and what we've found is that when you when you sort of delineate uh, along that $60 line, um, things don't look too great in the, in the U.S. by and large. You know, um, the latest in our latest report, we have um, less than 20 percent of the population across the country has access to a plan at that price. And to be clear, um, whenever we're talking about pricing, what can be confusing is that um, we're not referring to promotional pricing, the price you might see on an ad or something like that, right? Because that's, right. That, that price is great and tends to get you um, on the hook, but then obviously over time that price will increase and it'll go to a standard rate. And so the, any pricing information you see in our research takes into account the, the, that primary rate and the rate it will be after that sort of promotional okay. period. So, yeah, you know, I, I think this is something that um, you know, th this statistic has sort of gone up and down, but it hasn't moved very much over the past few years. And, yeah. and it can actually go, um, you know, there can actually be less uh, folks having access to that over time just because pricing in major markets does fluctuate quite a bit. And sometimes we'll have a major provider that sort of phases out a lower end plan, for instance, in a major area, and that'll raise prices across the board. Um, and we also have this sort of interesting phenomena playing out in many cities across the U.S. where um, some of the major providers are sort of phasing out older technologies like DSL. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a, ostensibly a good thing on paper because that technology is certainly what I would consider a legacy connection type at this point. And it, yeah. it definitely doesn't serve many of the needs we have today, much less the needs 10 years from now. Um, but, but the sort of more immediate issue that creates is that in some cases, there's not a more gold standard option like fiber to replace that technology. And when there is, it's often more expensive. Um, and so what we found is that that can actually price people out of their own market as well, um, which creates a, a whole new set of issues. Yeah. And that speaks to, you had another report all about how uh, higher income Americans tend to pay less for broadband, right? That's right. Yeah. So what we found in that particular report is that um, broadband income or sorry, household income is a, a pretty strong um, predictor of broadband prices. And that, you know, again, part of this is intuitive, right? It's, uh, you know, again, in, in, 
in general, um, high population density areas tend to have higher incomes. Um, but yeah, I think the big thing there is that it, it, really kind of speaks more to the competitive landscape in those areas, right? We, I mentioned this briefly, but, you know, in a major city where there's, you know, potentially millions of paying customers um, from a purely private sector standpoint, it makes sense to go in and focus your broadband expansion efforts on those areas versus areas um, that, you know, are extremely rural, have maybe a thousand people living in them, you know, it might not make sense even, I mean, just in general to build like something like a fiber network, um, which can be very expensive to build per home, doing fiber all the way to the home. Um, it might not make sense for a company to do that um, financially. Right. So, you know, this this has been a very tricky problem to solve in the U.S. Uh, historically. And there's been a number of ways that we've sort of tried to solve it. Um, and in many cases, the it's been successful in some areas, unsuccessful in others. And, you know, there's there's sort of this wide variety of strategies um, that has been used. But, yeah, it's it's something where we we often see that taking a very um, individualized approach per state, like states sort of have their own strategy for, for dealing with this. And some have been more successful than others, I would say. Um, but the, the reason I sort of frame it that way is because obviously with, with the bead grant process now, states are essentially in charge of their own destiny going forward. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're right now, states across uh, America are, are putting together the sort of final touches on their broadband plan for the bead grant process, which essentially is going to dictate, um, you know, who they give this historic amount of funding to, what strategies they take. Are they are they just going to, um, you know, work with incumbent providers and say, hey, you know, this is the easiest way to handle this massive amount of work. You know, you guys are well equipped for this. Are there yeah. going to be states that take a, a more individualized approach and say, hey, we want to work with municipalities. We want to work in areas where there isn't a lot of private competition. We want to prioritize those grants. Um, so, yeah, all of these all of these things are interconnected, right? They 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 all have a, a very tangible impact on things like pricing, especially in those areas where, yeah, the, the prices have historically been, uh, in general, higher across the board than those who live in, in major broadband markets, we would call them. Yeah, it makes total sense. So let's uh, let's talk about bead for a minute. Um, we should level set for anyone who hasn't heard of it at this point. I can't imagine mm. listening to this podcast, but it's the forty two point five billion dollar broadband equity access and deployment program. Um, as you mentioned, the NTIA is going to allocate uh, funds this summer, so states are in the process of creating their plans that they'll need to get approved by NTIA for spending those dollars. Um, but you have a couple of reports that I think. Speak to uh, potential concerns about bead uh, barriers with bead. One of them is a report on the FCC's map, the new map, um, which uh, everybody I think knows at this point. There have been concerns about uh, challenges with. So let's stick with that that report for a second. Um, what did you? What were your takeaways on on the uh, in your FCC mapping report? And do you have any concerns about um, what it's going to ultimately mean for bead allocations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, so to continue the level set for a second, uh, so the you know for anyone who's not aware, I'm sure most folks are, but um, for the past decade plus, we've been using a, a reporting mechanism 
which is the sort of form 477 deployment data mechanism for determining if your house has broadband or doesn't, right? Um, so, you, you know, we've essentially used this to determine areas where we need to improve broadband, areas that are good and don't need additional investment, um, that sort of thing. The issue with that is that that report or that reporting mechanism rather has a couple of infamous flaws, um, one of which is that it's it, it was pretty inaccurate at a holistic level because it used census blocks to sort of determine all of this data. And the issue with that is that if if, if I'm a provider and I covered one house in your, your area, your, your neighborhood, so to speak, the entire neighborhood could be counted as serviced. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, it, it was a longstanding issue, um, and it was something that was creating this this sort of massive issue of overreporting at the national level of where broadband was and wasn't available. Um, that's something we've actually looked into on in our own data. We've done sort of national audits of this data in the past and found that the, it's pretty egregious. Um, and so. Um, the new map process ostensibly was designed to fix that issue by replacing the census block with actual address level granularity. So sort of zooming in and understanding where broadband is and isn't available on a, on a finer um, level. Um, but the, as, as often is the case with these sort of massive undertakings, the initial um, rollout was not <clears throat> as... Uh, much of a sort of level of improvement as as I personally would have hoped. And I, I've spoken to a number of people in broadband offices and people involved in planning, and they've sort of echoed that sentiment. Um, obviously, we had this sort of bulk challenge process earlier in the year where states were essentially having to go in and, and try to issue, you know, thousands of corrections on this data um, because it just it wasn't quite lining up with their own internal data collection efforts. Um, and sort of the stress around that was that this new data set is what's being used to power this massive amount of funding um, and all of these sort of funding decisions, um, you know, they're being made through this new pipeline. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, there, there's a couple, there's a couple philosophies here. One is that, um, you know, the SEC themselves has said that this is sort of a, an entry point to this new data, um, sort of a beginning, not an end point. It's, a, it's an entirely new era of broadband mapping. To that end, they've called for sort of public involvement on the broadband map. They've, you know, there's now a way where a consumer can actually go to the FCC's website and type in their address and say, oh, that doesn't quite look right. I don't think I have access to that. And then they can actually challenge it directly. Um, which is great, and, and there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, whether that will actually be impactful when it comes to the the B grant process, because really the, the you know the sort of deadline for the major challenges have passed, and now we're in this kind of purgatorial phase where we're like, okay, we're about, you know, we're we haven't seen the money from that uh, program go out yet, we haven't seen what that process is going to look like exactly, um, and so it's almost certain that there's going to be some speed bumps when that uh, initial allocation happens because we're we're going to probably run into some um, issues of you know building in the wrong areas you know maybe putting funds into areas that don't need it as much as others that are sort of underrepresented in that data set um, and so there's just a from my perspective there's a lot of um, uncertainty about how this process and this initiative is going to go in the, over the long term. Um, you know, is the FCC and the NTIA and our states going to take a really proactive approach to, you know, understanding that if you want to make this data set sort of a living document, um, 
you know, we need to sort of use it uh, in a dynamic way and really sort of take into account um, the changes over time, because I do, I do hope that what we'll see is a, a more intense degree of change over time in terms of the accuracy of this data. Because what we, what we found tracking the old way of measuring broadband for years is that often we would, um, you know, we would compare year over year and we wouldn't really see a lot of difference. Um, maybe we would see differences in certain areas, but often when we drilled in and kind of checked on our own data, it, you know, a lot of what we saw wasn't actually happening um, in terms of the, you know, broadband deployment in, in areas. Yeah. Yeah. So, in a, in a, and I think a lot of states are hoping that they're going to be able to use their own mapping data uh, when it comes down to actually distributing the grants. But I, I think it's kind of a wait and see on on how that actually goes. Very much so. Yeah. So, one of your other uh, mo your most recent report, at least as of this conversation, uh, was on the municipal broadband barriers um, in various states. Uh, they they come in different flavors. There's some you know stricter barriers and some others that are more uh, you know just so there are, there are direct bans and then there are sort of like lighter barriers. But uh, your report points out that because of language in the NTIA's notice of funding opportunity for the BEAD program that uh, tells states that they're going to have to basically say why uh, municipalities and or other um, non-private providers, if they didn't participate in BEAD, why? Um, your report points, points out that that, that fact um, could end up in states getting their funding delayed uh, for BEAD if, if they ha continue to have barriers in place to municipal broadband. Uh, I, I didn't explain that very eloquently, but I do want to point out that the NTIA has since uh, gone on the record and said, you know, it doesn't expect that that's going to be a problem. But, you know, BEAD, we still have quite a while until uh grants are actually distributed, and it all comes down to people interpreting language in a statute, right? So um, I'd love for you to explain a little bit uh, what you found in your report and what your concerns are about how this could hold up BEAD. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is a trippy, tricky topic because I think, uh, you know, often what we're doing here is we're really just making predictions and then we're, we're kind of just seeing what happens, right? I think this program is unprecedented. I think the, the structure of it is something we've never really tried before in this, this current, um, permutation. I think, you know, sort of taking this state led approach is, is really opening up questions that for the most part have just been, um, like it's really calling into question decisions that have been made behind closed doors historically. And, and municipal broadband is one of those things, right? Uh, for the, the longest time, this has been something that, uh, you know, organizations like us have, have talked about, but for the most part, it's, it's really been something that the public hasn't had any say in. It's, it's not something that's exactly top of mind when people think about their broadband issue. They don't, you know, they don't often imagine like, well, why doesn't my city provide broadband for me or something like that? You know, it's just not yeah. something that we've seen a ton of examples across the country, although there are providers doing excellent work um, as municipalities or as electric co-ops, you know, all across the country. It's it's still not something that's super common. Um, so, yeah, I think um, really what what I'm concerned about and really just drilling down on in the report is that you know, it, it feels like, and I have no, I should clarify, I have no inside knowledge at the NTIA, at the FCC, anywhere else. This is just my own thought, but <laughs> it really feels like the language that the NTIA is using in this um, sort of initial plan is is 
intentional. Mm-hmm. It's designed not to draw a hard line in the sand and say, hey, we, we are going to withhold funding. You know, this, this has to be something where you preempt your state laws. We want it done this way. It seems like it's more language intended to open a dialogue in areas where there really hasn't been one before. It seems like they're attempting to <clears throat> just require that states fully articulate their view and their strategy on what the issues in their state is, what the barriers to broadband deployment are, and how they think they can best um, fix those issues and, and sort of bridge that gap. Um, and I think that <clears throat> that's a that's really a good thing because in many states, um, this the sort of concept of having like a broadband office that does this sort of work and like is actually taking a fine tooth comb to this issue is really a new thing. Um, many of these broadband offices are newly established. They're things, you know, they're, they're, they're filled with people who are all of a sudden, you know, completely inundated with all of these grant requests. And they're, you know, they're in many cases uh, underfunded. And these, these offices are essentially in charge of dealing with this massive new program. Um, and they're also sort of working with the existing sort of policy and legal framework within their state. You know, they're having to figure out, okay, what, now that we have this potential, what can we do with it? You know, what's the, what are our set of tools essentially that we have to work with? Um, and I, I think we'll almost certainly see, um, states that are sort of pro municipal broadband, making that a center point of their state plan, right? They're going to, you know, let's take a state like Washington, for example, you know, I think it's probably, uh, fairly safe bet to say that they will, you know, include those sort of providers and that sort of setup into their plan and sort of make it a, a key component and say, hey, we're going to we're going to work with these providers. We're going to work with small independent providers and we're going to sort of target areas that way. We're going to look at areas where the private sector hasn't adequately uh, serviced and we're going to sort of prioritize those because those are the areas where we need the most help. Right. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side of that, I think we'll see certain states that say, you know, um, you know, we've had this uh, sort of anti-municipal stance for a long time. It's it, it's worked well for us. We don't, you know, we don't want um, our sort of governments getting into the the business of creating broadband and sort of managing broadband networks. There's a there's sort of a a debt burden, um, you know, talking point that's used a lot about municipal broadband. There have certainly been cities that have sort of gotten over their heads. It turns out it is difficult to uh, actually establish a a broadband, uh, like an ISP style uh, service for um, constituents and actually, you know, manage it. Um, So there are issues. Um, But yeah, I think that what we'll, what we'll end up seeing is that uh, for the first time, sort of consumers will have a, a direct understanding of, you know, where their state falls on this issue. And, mm-hmm. and then hopefully, you know, again, that these plans will have to be submitted for public comment um, and right. will have to be sort of defended in public for the first time. Um, so I'm thinking that, you know, I, I saw the NTIA statement. I've certainly, you know, seen a lot um, sort of suggesting to the contrary that this, this isn't going to be like a major roadblock or something like that to the, the bead grant process. But I do wonder if there's just going to be a sort of, um, you know, controversy of some kind, you know, when it comes to these, these states having to defend this. And I I think we're going to see a lot of like state versus state comparison, like looking at the other guy and saying, Oh, hold on. He's, you know, they're just working this way and it's going really smoothly and maybe that's not happening in some other areas. And so I, um, 
Yeah, I, I, I should be clear. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think that this, this you process, don't know. <laughs> I know. It's a, you know, I wish I did. I wish I could say with, with certainty. I, I think no one really does. I think yeah. you know, the NCIA certainly um, has a plan in place, and I think that we're really. My senses were in this sort of calm before the storm. You know, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna receive this guidelines. We're gonna see how states react, and we're gonna go from there. And I, um, yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to get out ahead of this, I guess, having seen sort of not programs like this, but similar programs in the past, seeing how they've gone with states, seeing how, you know, in some cases they've sort of failed to address the core issues of the digital divide. I just, from my perspective, I'm just always trying to get out ahead and say, okay, how could this, how could this go wrong? Right. Uh, you know, what could happen here? Um, because I think, you know, if it doesn't, that's amazing, but it's something we should be thinking about. Looking ahead and saying, how can this go wrong? Uh, you and I understand each other very well. Um, I <laughs> I want to thank you for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. And I'm looking forward to keeping up with your your research. I'm sure you're going to have a lot to look into as, as Bede and all the rest progress. I think uh, all of us in the industry will be very busy uh, over the next uh, couple of years. Yes. <laughs> no question. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Nicole. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you again, Tyler, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landreau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>